Don't you for a moment believe that Old Testament believers didn't look back and hang themselves and their hope on the person who would come who would destroy sin? Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series titled The Church in God's Eternal Plan. We're looking at what the Bible has to say about the church. To understand its importance and mission, you must understand the relationship between Israel and the church. While there are many views on this issue, today Tom will examine three main views that many Christians hold regarding this important relationship. And as you'll discover, there is one specific trajectory for both the church and the people of Israel, a trajectory that culminates in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Let's join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. If the church is a new thing, how does it relate to Israel? And what was God doing with Israel? And how does that compare with what He's doing with us? Let me ask you, before we begin to look at this, because I know some of you look at that question and you go, who cares? Why does this really matter? This is not just a how many angels can stand on the head of a pen kind of argument. An argument strictly for theologians. This question and the answer to it, listen carefully to me, has huge ramifications for every Christian. For example, how you answer this question determines how you read and interpret more than half of your Bible, that portion we call the Old Testament. How you answer this question tends to influence your conclusions about practical issues like whether you keep the Sabbath, whether you dedicate your babies or baptize them, and what kind of church you and your family will attend. And it dramatically affects your view of the future. So this is not an unimportant question. This is absolutely crucial at the foundational level to even how you read your Bible. But the question, I have to tell you, is not an easy one. Let me begin with you tonight. I'm not going to complete this tonight. I hope to finish it next week. But I want to begin with you by sort of leading you through the process. There are basically three primary positions about the relationship of Israel and the church. Please stick with me. I know this is going to be a little bit of heavy sledding, but trust me, you have to understand this to make these crucial questions, answer these crucial questions I've just asked. There are three primary positions today in evangelicalism about the relationship between Israel and the church. The first is called covenantalism. Now, when it comes to much of what the covenantalists teach, we wholeheartedly agree because covenantalism is primarily a doctrine or a teaching about the doctrine of salvation. What we just studied together as we went through the doctrine of salvation, most of our covenantal brothers would embrace, and we wholeheartedly agree, and we fellowship together, and we have a lot in common with them on the issue of the doctrine of salvation. In fact, we have just about everything in common with them on the doctrine of salvation. However, when it comes to this question, we absolutely do not agree with covenantalism. What is the relationship between Israel and the church? There are two predominant views within covenantalism. 
The first view is that the entire nation of Israel was in fact the Old Testament church. It was a church just like this is a church in South Lake. It was in every sense, in every way that we talk about the New Testament church, absolutely identical to the entire nation of Israel. Louis Burkhoff, for example, takes this position in systematic theology. He writes, In essence, Israel constituted the church of God in the Old Testament, though its external institution differed vastly from that of the church in the New Testament. That's just another way to say they were a nation and we're not. But in essence, it was the church in every sense that we think of the church in Corinth or the church in Thessalonica or the church in Southlake. Another view in covenantalism, a second variation of that, is that no, not the entire nation was the Old Testament church, but rather it's more accurate and better to say that the true believers in the nation of Israel were identical to the New Testament church. But not the entire nation, but rather those within Israel who were true Israel, as Paul says in Romans 9. So these are the two views. By the way, Robert Raymond takes this view, the second view, that the true believers in Israel were the church. Listen to what he writes. The church of God in Old Testament times blossomed mainly within the nation of Israel. However, this church was not equivalent to the nation of Israel per se. For there were always some, and sometimes many if not most, within that nation who were never more than the physical seed of Abraham who never possessed more than the outward circumcision of the flesh, and who thus were never the spiritual seed of Abraham. In other words, they may have been physical descendants of Abraham, but they weren't true believers like Abraham was. He goes on to say, The true church of the Old Testament was the spiritual seed of Abraham, that Israel within the nation of Israel, about whom the Apostle Paul speaks in Romans 9. So those are the two views. How do they defend the view that there was a church in the Old Testament? Well, essentially, they give five arguments. And I'm, I'm going to answer these, Lord willing, next week. So I'm not going to answer them now. I'm just going to give them to you. They say, well, the name assembly or congregation was given to Israel in the Old Testament, which, of course, is what the word church, ecclesia, means, assembly, as we saw. And the Septuagint translators, 200 years before Christ, used this word ecclesia to describe Old Testament Israel. A second argument they use is that the New Testament church is called the temple of God. Doesn't that sound Jewish to you? Doesn't that sound Old Testament to you? And so there must be continuity in the sense of the church existed in the Old Testament just as it exists in the New. Thirdly, they would say not only does Jesus promise to build the church in the future, as we saw in Matthew 16, but he recognized it as already existing in Matthew 18. Fourthly, they would say, well, look at what Stephen says in his sermon in Acts 7. He refers to Israel as the ecclesia in the wilderness, the church or assembly in the wilderness. And then finally, even Paul, they would say, equates the Old Testament and the church in a couple of passages. In Romans 11, in Ephesians 2, they would also point up a couple of others that we'll look at next week, in Galatians 6, verse 16, and so forth. So those are their arguments. That's the view that covenantalists take. There was a church in the Old Testament. It was either the entire nation or the true believers within the nation. A second 
of the primary positions. We've already looked at covenantalism. A second primary position is that of what's called traditional or classic dispensationalism. This started with about 200 years ago, the man who lived from 1800 to 1882 by the name of John Nelson Darby of Plymouth, Plymouth Brethren. Uh, it was popularized, and many of you grew up as I did, reading the C.I. Schofield Reference Bible. And of course, here in Dallas, Lewis Berry Chafer and Charles Ryrie were also, and are also, uh, Ryrie is a traditional or classic dispensationalist. Now, traditional dispensationalism taught that God has two completely distinct purposes in human history. One for the earth through Israel and a second for heaven through the church. Let me give you a quote by Chafer that puts this in perspective. He says, The dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages God is pursuing two distinct purposes. One related to the earth with earthly people and earthly objectives involved, which is Judaism, earthly objectives involved, which is Judaism, while the other is related to heaven with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved, which is Christianity, end quote. So he would say, no, there was no church in the Old Testament. And in fact, they have absolutely no resemblance now and will never have any connection. There is no point in eternity in which they will ever connect, and certainly not in time. In fact, these early traditional or classic dispensationalists even taught, and I don't know that they fully intended to put it this way, but this is what they said, that there were two distinct ways of salvation. For example, if you look at your old version of the Schofield Reference Bible, in a note on 1 John 3, 7, Schofield wrote this, the righteous man under law became righteous by doing righteously. Under grace, he does righteously because he has been made righteous. In other words, Old Testament Israel, this earthly people, they were saved by being righteous. We're saved as a heavenly people by being declared righteous. Commenting on the petitions, go feel again, and commenting on the petition in the Lord's Prayer to forgive us our debts, he says this, this is legal ground. Under law, forgiveness is conditioned upon a like spirit in us. Under grace, we are forgiven for Christ's sake and exhorted to forgive because we've been forgiven. So you see the attitude and the mindset. There was this utter distinction between Israel and the church. Israel was an earthly people, even perhaps saved a different way. They will always be an earthly people, always bound to the earth, whereas the church is a heavenly people, bound for heaven and bound and saved a different way, saved through the imputed righteousness of Christ. This view also would embrace this traditional or classic dispensationalism, would say that Israel and the church will always be separate, even in eternity future. For some of them, not for all of them, but for some, even in eternity, Israel will occupy the new earth and the church will occupy heaven, basically. So we'll always be separate, separate compartments, even in eternity. For others, like Charles Ryrie, they've mediated that position with agreement that both Israel and the church will share the heavenly Jerusalem in the new heavens. So, those are two views. Covenantalism, 
and traditional or classic dispensationalism and their views about the relationship between Israel and the church. Now, folks, I have to tell you that as a whole, I do not, I cannot agree with either. And that's why I'm thankful for a third position that really encapsulates my own position, what I believe the Scriptures teach, not covenantalism, not traditional or classic dispensationalism, but progressive dispensationalism. I am, as uh, my mentor John MacArthur likes to say, a leaky dispensationalist. I personally prefer progressive dispensationalists. Now, uh, if you want to read some about this, if you're just really sitting there thinking, I have got to read more about this issue. I, I recommend Robert Sosey's book, The Case for Progressive Dispensationalism. It'll give you a, a heady uh, but good exposure to this issue. Now, what does progressive dispensationalism teach about the relationship between Israel and the church? Well, I want you to see that progressive dispensationalism, and I believe accurately reflect, reflecting the Scriptures, believes that there are great, great similarities between Israel and the church. Let me just run through those with you briefly in the few minutes we have remaining. First of all, both Israel and the church contain the true people of God. There's no question that but when you look in the Old Testament, Israel was the, the focal point of the people of God. Were there believers in other places? Yes, I believe there were. And I believe you have that hinted at, for example, in the widow of Zarephath and other Old Testament stories. And, of course, there were those who came to embrace the faith of Yahweh who were not originally part of Israel, like Rahab, the harlot, like Ruth, but who came to embrace the truth about God. But primarily, God's people were housed in a nation. The same thing is said of the church today. The church is the place of the true people of God. Secondly, they're similar in the fact that both Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church are saved by the work of Christ. Listen, folks. When you go back, in fact, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. In the context of Genesis 3, man has just fallen. Adam and Eve have made a terrible choice of sin. And as a result of that, God brings upon them and upon the whole earth a curse. But in the midst of that curse comes a promise. A promise that should excite your soul the way it excited Adam and Eve's souls. Listen to what God says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, speaking here to the serpent, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He shall crush your head and in the process of crushing your head you'll simply bruise his heel here is a prophecy given about a coming person a person who would bring about a permanent and final remedy to satan and to sin don't you for a moment believe that old testament believers didn't look back and hang themselves and their hope on the person who would come who would destroy sin you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, Old Testament believers, all they really believed was that somehow that animal they killed was going to atone for their sin. Listen, they weren't stupid. 
They could read Genesis 3 just like you and I could read it. They understood through this passage. And then as time comes along, there's another promise and more directed promise of who this person would be and where he'd come from until you get to Micah and we're even told what town he'd be born in. And of course, Isaiah tells us all that he would accomplish. These people were looking for a person who would be the final sacrifice. They didn't understand all that we understood all that we understand, rather. They didn't understand that He would be the second person of the Trinity and all the things that we understand about His nature that the New Testament makes clear to us. But they did understand He'd be a person and they did understand that He would come to put a final end to sin and they long and look forward to that. So when Christ comes, His death doesn't merely provide for our salvation from everything from that time future. His death provided for those in the past as well. You see this in so many places. I love Romans 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And when you get to the book of Acts, Paul and the apostles are continually reminding the people they talk to that the gospel they're preaching about a Messiah was in the Old Testament, and that was where they hung their hope. Both Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church are saved by the work of Christ. As you've heard it so many times, they look forward to a person who would put an end to sin, and we look back. But the cross and Christ accomplished the salvation of both. Thirdly, both Old Testament Israel and the church appropriate that salvation that Christ accomplished in the same way, and that is by faith alone. Don't you for a moment believe, C.I. Schofield, that they were somehow saved by law? Let me show you how clear Paul is with this. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Paul, as he now begins to introduce the gospel, he says, but now, in contrast to your sin, in contrast to all of mankind's sin that he's been talking about from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, he says, in contrast to all of that, Apart from the law, apart from keeping the law, there has been this righteousness of God that has been manifested. The word manifested simply means to become known, to be plainly recognized, to be thoroughly understood. When did the righteousness of God become clear or plainly recognized? Paul is implying here that in the recent past, a decisive event had occurred. That event, of course, is the ministry and death of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that justification by faith is a new truth? That's what Paul's Jewish opponents accused him of, inventing a new way to God. But is this righteousness from God given as a gift, he goes on to say, something entirely new? Paul says, absolutely not. Look at what he says. No, this righteousness I'm telling you about, this imputed righteousness was is being manifested or witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is in the present tense. It is being witnessed to. As you read this letter, Romans, it is being witnessed to by the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament. The verb translated to witness means to testify about or to validate is true. So Paul's point is that the entire Old Testament constantly testifies to the fact that God declares believing sinners righteous by faith alone. 
Leon Morris writes, it is not some minor truth, talking about justification by faith alone, tucked away in an obscure corner of Scripture, but a great truth blazoned forth in both law and prophets. You say, well, what exactly does the Old Testament have to say about that? Well, as I just showed you, as early as Genesis 3.15, God reveals that men's only hope is found in one very special person. And Paul begins Romans by reminding his readers that the gospel was promised, as we see there in Romans 1, in the Old Testament. And then he cites as a great Old Testament text in Romans 1.17 as proof of his message, Habakkuk 2.4. Those declared righteous by faith shall live. Then he continues in chapter 4 where he argues that this is how God saved Abraham, verses 1 to 6, and David, verses 7 to 8. You say, but okay, I see it was there and this is how God accomplished it, but was the Old Testament revelation clear enough for Old Testament believers to understand? Well, when confronted by Jewish leaders, listen to what Paul said. I stand to this day testifying to both small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said. That's what Paul said about his ministry of the gospel, about justification by faith alone. Justification isn't some new plan cooked up by a first century Pharisee. It is the way every saint from Adam on has gained right standing with God. It has always been God's plan. It's the way Old Testament Israelites came into right relation to God, and it's the way we come into right relationship to God. Another similarity is that both have benefited from the work of the Spirit. In the work of regeneration, bringing new life to their hearts, sanctifying them, setting them apart, and even the abiding presence of the Spirit. Now, John 14 to 16 seems to indicate that with Pentecost there was some change in the work of the Spirit. But these realities were still there, and we saw them. We talked about these things as we talked about the nature of God and the nature of salvation in past months. They benefited, the Old Testament Israelites, who were true believers, from the work of the Spirit in their lives to accomplish these things. And we benefit from these things as well. Both were assigned the same responsibility, and that is to be a witness nation. Israel, you see this in Exodus 19 there at Sinai. God tells them why he's entering into covenant with them. He says, you're going to be my possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine, all the earth is mine, and you're going to be, for me, a kingdom of priests. You're going to be those who help the nations understand what I'm like. The same thing is said of the church. 1 Peter 2.5, you're going to be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. But more specifically, in Revelation 1.6, He has made us, the church, to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Finally, both are beneficiaries of the new covenant. The wonderful promises that are made in the new covenant... Israel, in Jeremiah 31:31, we read, The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And yet the church also participates in that new covenant. In 1 Corinthians 11:25, Paul quotes Jesus on the night of his crucifixion, or the night of the Last Supper, rather, saying that he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. You're going to partake 
of the benefits of the new covenant. And it's true, Paul told the Corinthians for you as well, Gentiles, get in on the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3.6, Paul said he was a servant, a minister of the new covenant. And in Hebrews chapter 8, we're told that Jesus was our mediator of a better covenant, a, the new covenant. So you can see that there are a lot of similarities. Understand this, folks. If you compare, listen very carefully to what I'm going to say. If you compare the true believers in the Old Testament Israel with us, we have much more in common than we have differences. However, although Israel and the church are similar in many ways, they are not identical. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of The Church and God's Eternal Plan. Join us next time for part three. And friend, join Tom Pennington in Southlake, Texas, February 18th through the 20th for the 2022 Countryside Bible Church Conference, Our Glorious Hope. Tom welcomes Steve Lawson, H.B. Charles, Philip DeCourcy, and more to remind you of the eternal hope of heaven that is ours in Christ and to spur you on to live in light of that reality today. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.